Psalms. This is the seventh uh, psalm in our series, um, and 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 we will be looking at another penitential lament psalm. And so I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. But but what we've been learning is that all of us in a broken world have times of great darkness and despair and discouragement. Uh, we've talked about how that can take a form of depression. Um, we've talked about how when that sometimes uh, that can even get to a place where where we say with even people in the scripture sometimes it's like Lord just take my life you know I, I, I'm I'm done and uh, and and we can understand those feelings and and here's what we've been learning is that these prayers these songs of lament are in the scriptures inspired by God God breathed. Because he understands our pain and, and our, our discouragement. And that is why we need to lean into these psalms of lament. And, um, and before we begin, I'd like to just show a brief uh, clip of Tim Keller addressing how to deal with dark times uh, from the psalms. Here he is. Which means when you go through darkness, if you don't feel God's there, but you hold on anyway, and you say, you know what? You're God and I'm not. And I'm not getting anything out of this, but I'm still going to pray. I'm still going to go to church and worship. I'm still going to love my neighbor. I'm still going to do the things I ought to do. That will turn you into a person not self-centered, not in a transactional relationship, up and down all the time. It'll turn you into a person of endurance, of stability, of strength, of greatness. At the end of the... Uh, book Lord of the Rings, the book, not the movie. Sam, you know, the friend of Frodo, they're on their way to Mount Doom and they, they're getting close to the end and their strength is almost out. And Sam looks up to the top of Mount Doom and he suddenly realizes we're going to die. No matter what happens, we're going to die. And the thought comes to him, just lay down, curl up in a little ball and go to sleep. And then what the text tells us, then something begins to happen. And it says this, quote, but even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned to a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, as the will hardened in him, and he felt through all his limbs a thrill, as if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. He was being turned into something of greatness, and it's in the darkness where you throw away that transactional approach. It's almost like when bad things happen, God is looking at you and saying, okay, now we're going to figure out whether you got into the Christian faith to get me to serve you or in order that you would serve me. Now we're going to find out. Because right now you're not going to get much out of a relationship with me. Now we're going to see whether you're serving me or yourself, whether you're loving me or yourself. And when you say, okay, I'm going to love you, I'm going to serve you, it's going to change you. That is very significant, what, what, what uh, Tim Keller just pointed out there. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. But, okay, the fact is we are all going to have dark times. We live in a broken world, and because of sin, there's going to be uh, times in our life when, when God is distant. Uh, we don't feel his presence. Uh, and, and, and it is in those times, he says, it's, it's almost uh, like when bad things happen, God is looking at you and saying, okay, now we are going to figure out whether 
you got into the Christian faith to get me to serve you or in order that you would serve me? Now we're going to find out because right now you're not going to get much out of it. And there's times like that. Our relationship with God is dry. He seems distant. We're seeing this in the laments and you start asking questions. Are you, are you going to hide your face forever? That's, what, that's in God's word. These are the questions that they're asking. And he says, now we're going to see whether you're serving me or yourself, whether you're loving me or yourself. And when you say, I'm going to love you and serve you, in spite of the lack of feelings, in spite of the circumstances around me, um, then, then that is going to change you. Um, we are learning that the lamentation, the prayers of lamentation are the chief component of prayers in the Old Testament. Who lamented? Who didn't? Uh, Moses, Elijah, Samson, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, a whole book on it, Job, David, Habakkuk, Jesus himself, quotes from Psalm 22, a lament psalm. And, And so now we're coming to Psalm 130, and it is just eight verses long. And, um, and we're going to see this cry from the depths. This is kind of where the title of the sermon series came from. Out of the depths is where the psalm begins. And so many just title it, uh, Out of the Depths. Um, and then we're going to talk about hope that is in the Lord. <laughs> Very similar theme to all of the uh, lament psalms. We've learned that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. We've learned that the book of Psalms uh, is a, was the song book of God's people, Israel. They sang these. This is in Hebrew poetry. And so because it's poetry, you can express so much, you can put so much more emphasis and express such emotion. And, uh, and we've seen all kinds of emotions. And, and the lament Psalms are the most common of all the Psalms. Uh, over a third of the Psalms are lament. All right? How, what, what's a lament look like? It opens with a, a cry to God, and we'll see that in this psalm. This is a unique psalm in that the lament is a little harder to find, uh, but it, ha- it has to do with him feeling guilt over sin. Uh, the, that we'll see a lament or a complaint to God, and then this confession of trust is a very critical centerpiece of the laments, uh, and then the petition to God. Sometimes it's, you know, God, hear me. Uh, you know, um, see my problem. And, and, uh, and so it's kind of strong imperatives. And then often there is a shout of praise or a vow of praise at the end. All right. Um, the book that I have mentioned, and if you'd like to pick it up, uh, uh, Mark Vrogop uh, is pastor of a large church in Indianapolis. A uh, book this year he's written, the foreword is by Johnny Erickson Tata, but Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. It's been very helpful. He looks at just a few psalms in there. But he says, Lament rises from the firm belief in the character of God, an understanding of the brokenness of sin, and a heartfelt longing for the completion of God's redemptive plan. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. That's... That's what we're going to see, and, uh, and we'll see that again here in Psalm 130. So if you have your Bibles open, follow along with me as I start at verse 1 of Psalm 130. A song of ascents, we'll, uh, ascent going up, we'll, we'll talk about that. Out of the depths, I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. 
If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is God's word to us from Psalm 130. Um, We're looking at the cry of mercy from the depths. Uh, Trusting God and His forgiveness gives us hope, hope of redemption, and brings us out of the depths. Trusting God and His forgiveness, that seems to be a centerpiece of this psalm, gives us hope of his redemption, his ultimate redemption, and brings us out of the depths. Um, Psalm 130 is an individual. Most feel like it is is an individual crying out to God, but it has to do with the community, as we see in the verses 7 and 8. And so he's going to use this as an encouragement for the people of Israel. Uh, But it is a penitential psalm in that it has to do with um, sin. Um, and and the results and consequences of sin. Uh, and, and this is one of 15 psalms of ascent. Um, psalm 120 to Psalm 134 are, are all psalms of lament that God's people Israel sang as pilgrims on their way up to, up to Jerusalem. Ascent in the sense that Jerusalem, uh, the highest point in Palestine, about 2,700 feet, um, and, and, and they are singing this at the various worship festivals, um, three different times, uh, in the spring, in the summer, in the fall, as they go up to Jerusalem, they're singing this. So um, Eugene Peterson has written a book, uh, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction on the Psalms of Ascent. And, and he says in these 15 psalms, uh, they were sung possibly in sequence by Hebrew pilgrims as they went up to Jerusalem to the great worship festivals, to Topographically, Jerusalem is the highest city in Palestine, so all who traveled there spent much of their time ascending. But the ascent was not only literal, it is also a metaphor. The trip to Jerusalem acted out a life lived upward toward God, an existence that advanced from one level to another level of developing maturity. This is a beautiful thought because... This psalm isn't a a psalm of ascent. And in a sense, it is a psalm of ascent in and of itself. He starts in the depths and he ends in hope in God. And so uh, even the psalm itself goes from the the pit to a place of praise. And so that's what we're seeing here. This general structure of of this lament is, is kind of in verses of two. Verses 1 and 2 is his cry for, for mercy. And maybe you could say that uh, is, his, is his lament. Uh, verses 3 and 4 is this idea of, of claiming or a prayer for God's forgiveness. And maybe we could say this is the confession of trust, which goes into verses 5 and 6 where he declares he hopes, he waits 
um, in, in, on the Lord. And, uh, and we see this repetition of these words. And then finally, uh, it's, it broadens to his giving hope and encouragement to the whole nation of Israel to hope in the Lord. Um, very interestingly, you could kind of um, put the, two, the first two, uh, two sections, the first four verses and the last four verses. He says, I cry to God for mercy with God as forgiveness. And in the second, I wait for God and with God is complete redemption. And so you see this kind of pattern often in the Psalms. Um, and, and so this, he addresses God and then he addresses the congregation. All right, so this is the, the, the layout of the psalm. Uh, the psalm begins with a cry of mercy out of the depths, probably just a, a figurative way of talking about deep distress out of the depths, and he moves to a prayer for forgiveness from the Lord. Uh, the, the Yahweh, this, his covenant name, is used five times, and this word Adonai, Lord, uh, in lowercase, uh, is used three different times. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, says that the depths are eloquent enough in themselves as a figure of, of near despair, a picture with the victim's sense of floundering and terror. Uh, the, the, the Jewish people were not really seagoing, seafaring people. And so often waters are used as kind of a picture of I'm drowning, I'm floundering. And, and what is clear in all such passages is that self-help is no answer to the depths of distress, however useful it may be in the shallows of self-pity. Okay, so you can self-pity all you want, but, but we cannot help ourselves in these periods of time. You remember Jonah? Um, in, in, in his disobedience, uh, he is thrown overboard, right? And in Jonah chapter 2, the first time we hear Jonah praying... Is when? Is when he's in the depths. He's he's in the belly of the fish. (laughs) And he cries out to God. And people think, is Jonah repenting here? And then in chapter 3, you see the repentance of the Ninevites. And you say, I don't think so. And then in chapter 4, you see his anger of God having mercy upon the Ninevites. And he says, no, I guess he didn't. And... um, and so it, it, when you are in the depths is when you cry out to God. And so uh, the psalmist is, is in a time of deep despair. And, um, and we see him crying out to God. Now verses 3 and 4, let's look at these together. So he says, Out of the depths I have cried to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. Supplications. Verse 3. If you, O Lord should mark iniquities. O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. It's like, it's. I I said the centerpiece because it really seems like the psalm kind of revolved, pivots on verses 3 and 4. This question, um, and and it's a rhetorical question. Uh, If, Lord, if, if you should mark iniquities, if you should count sins... Oh Lord, who could stand? And obviously the answer is no one, none, not even one person could. And so that's why I say this is probably um, part of his lament is the guilt that he is uh, having before God because of his sin um, or the sin of the people. 
if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who should who could stand? And so what we see here at the first part of this psalm is the fact of God's full and free forgiveness. It's like he is recognizing the forgiveness that there is with God and and it is it is starting to give him hope. But with you there is forgiveness. And it leads, it says here, that you may be feared, that you may be feared. But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. And some, I, in reading a number of commentaries, they, they wrestle with this idea of fear. Or why, why would you fear God if he is a forgiving God? And so um, this, this psalm happened to be one of the favorite psalms of Martin Luther. Uh, who described it uh, with kind of a twinkle in his eye as a Pauline psalm, <laughs> along with Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Psalm 143. These are penitential psalms. One of the first uh, commentaries that Martin Luther wrote was a book on the penitential psalms. There's seven of them. And he calls these Pauline psalms because... They are psalms that offer forgiveness freely by God's grace, not by human effort. And, uh, and that is what we see in this psalm. Um, do you remember um, Mark chapter 2? And uh, there was a man uh, that was a paralytic. And, and the text says in Mark 2 that everyone was gathering around Jesus there was no room in the house. So do you remember what his four friends did? What'd they do? They opened the roof, right? And they let him down right in the middle, uh, right in front of Jesus. And um, the first thing Jesus says to him is, Son, your sins are forgiven. And if you were one of his four friends and, and you're thinking, hey, this guy is paralyzed, I thought we were bringing him here for a healing. I thought I, I really thought that, that what would be most helpful for our friend would be for him to be healed of his paralysis. And you're saying, son, your sins are forgiven. That could almost be kind of a downer. But here's what we learn, is that, is that the presenting problem is not always the real problem. And Jesus knew that his, his deepest problem was his need for forgiveness. And what we see here in this psalm and in these seven penitential, isn't that interesting? Seven penitential psalms. Seven is kind of a number of perfection, right? And, and so there's seven in the 150 psalms that are just psalms, songs written about despair because of sin. And in this one in particular, we read this phrase, O Lord, should, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Psalm 130 was a favorite psalm of Augustine, of Luther, of John Calvin, John Wesley. Uh, the story is that he was an unconverted pastor, John Wesley. He was preaching to congregations, but he wasn't saved. And so one day he was reading the introduction to Martin Luther's uh, uh, commentary on the Psalms. And he read this passage about Psalm 130 and this verse in particular, verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? 
And, and then the, te- the, the, uh, the story goes that he was walking to St. Paul's Cathedral in, in England uh, and in London, and he heard the choir singing Psalm 130. And this was God speaking to him, and in that moment he was converted. Uh, John Owen, a Puritan pastor and theologian, uh, preached a number of messages on Psalm 130, and, and it, it, it comprised a book of 352 pages long on this one psalm alone. 352 pages. John Bunyan uh, loved this psalm. And so what you see is that this has been a psalm that has given such encouragement and hope and strength to so many through the history of the church. And, um, and so we, we should gain a lot from... You, you, at first reading, you might think, wow, I'm not sure. So maybe you need to go back and read it again and again and just pray through this psalm uh, this week. But now uh, in, in verse 5, we come to kind of a change. And so once he understands the forgiveness that there is with the Lord and that, that he may be feared, that he may be worshipped, uh, that there should be a sense of awe because of what he's done. He says, I wait for the Lord. There's a change. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. In the promises of his word, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. We see this confession of trust continuing and this repetition of the words wait, hope, and watchman. And so all of this, I think these words are all used to, de- to, to describe his trust. He is now trusting in the Lord and in the promises of his word. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. The psalmist's hope is in God's word and in the promises to redeem his people. So he waits as a watchman for the morning. In plain terms, Kidner says, he speaks of a promise to cling to. In picturing the watchman, he chooses in his simile a hope that will not fail. Night may seem endless, but morning is certain and determined. So maybe you've been a person who's had trouble sleeping, and, and it just seems like the night is going on and on. Maybe you can think of a time, uh, maybe it's now, where, where you've had trouble sleeping and, and you're up at night. And it just seems, how long is this night going to last? One thing you can be sure of is morning is coming. That, and that's what he's saying here. There are watchmen. There are, there are, it, these could be military uh, individuals. Uh, some believe these could be shepherds keeping watch at night. Um, Some say these are the Levites waiting to offer the morning sacrifice. But whatever the case, they are waiting anxiously for the morning, and morning will come. And and so he says it twice. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Yes, indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. Bruce Waltke says night night watchmen are in view. They, They are actively present, not idle observers. These alert, keen-eyed sentinels, among other duties, protected the city from danger, giving themselves no rest. The repetition of more than the watchman waiting for the morning serves both to capture the tedium of the watchman's task and to heighten the urgency of his longing for a new relationship with the Lord. So, so there's hope, right? Uh, 
darkness, uh, sorrow may last for the night, sadness, but joy comes in the morning. And so we see his security in the Lord. I wait, I hope. Israel, hope in the Lord. He will redeem Israel. And so he ends with this word of encouragement to the whole nation. Um, in verses 7 and 8, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness. And with the Lord uh, there is abundant, I think the uh, ESV in, uh, translates it, plentiful, plentiful redemption. And, and one, one commentator called it his wealth of saving power. Uh, and so he's, 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 he's seen the forgiveness of God. He claims it for himself, but he says, oh, this is, this is too good to keep to myself. Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Plentiful redemption. We often see in the Lament Psalms this character trait of God's loving kindness or his steadfast love, this loyal love, this covenant-keeping love, the fact that God will be true to his covenant promises to his people. He will fulfill these promises. We've been seeing the storyline of the Bible, and, and so there is this sense in which God has promised all way back to Abraham that he will bless him, that they could be a blessing to all nations. And he will fulfill his promises to his people. So he can say, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The expression, plenteous redemption, I love this, reminds God's people that he has a thousand ways to effect salvation for those who put their trust in him. His patience and mercy had, been, uh, had not been exhausted by the nation's long and persistent rebellion but confession and contrition will soon open the floodgates of his loving kindness. I, I love that thought of God's nothing is able to, uh, to, um, to drain the wealth of God's power to save and to redeem. Um, America's, uh, I was just Googling, America's 50 biggest donors, uh, charitable donors. Um, they, they gave $7.8 billion to charity in 2018. Um, and that's 50% down from 2017. It's like, you're kidding me. Uh, that's half of what, what was given to charitable causes from, from U.S. donors um, in, in 2017. $7.8 billion. Uh, do you know who the, the biggest... Uh, donor to charitable causes was in 2018. I don't know if this is right, but it's got to be right. It's Google, right? Now, uh, Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos, uh, founder of Amazon, uh, this couple um, gave $2 billion to charitable causes in 2018. And get this, that was 1.5% of their total net worth. 1.5% and they gave $2 billion. You're kidding me. You're kidding me. That someone could be that wealthy. Listen, do you realize that God can forgive every single one of your sins and my sins and everyone else's sins and it does not deplete the wealth of His power to redeem, to save, 
it cannot deplete it. I mean, this, this illustration doesn't even hold a candle to the fact that our God, with Him, is forgiveness, that He would be worshipped and feared. And so I ask this question, have you cried out to God for His redemption through Jesus Christ? John Phillips says, He has a thousand ways to affect salvation for those who put their trust in Him. The elders... Uh, have these um, we will be voting on some new members. We always say that the most the greatest privilege of an elder is to sit down with potential m- new members of of Grace Church and to hear their stories of redemption of how they came to Christ. If you could sit with us and hear the variety, you would agree with Phillips when he says, "God has a thousand ways to affect salvation for those who who place their trust in him." And so nothing depletes his mercy and his grace. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You want to know why Psalm 130 was such an encouragement to Martin Luther, to John Calvin, to Augustine, to John Wesley, and the list goes on? It is because this teaches us that God's forgiveness is a gift by His grace. And and therefore we can trust Him, we can hope in Him, we can worship Him. Ephesians 1, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches, the riches of His grace which He has lavished upon us. Romans 5 says, The law came so that transgression would increase. So through the law of God, we see how far short we've fallen of God. It shows us our sin. It shows us our iniquity, our transgressions, how how far we are separated from God. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. If you are here and you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I just want you to know that there is salvation in Jesus Christ alone. With the Lord, there is forgiveness. If he would mark iniquity, no one could stand. We all fall short of his perfect standard, but by God's grace, we can be saved through Jesus Christ. Number two, do you know with certainty the Lord's full and free forgiveness? And I use those words full and free forgiveness. Uh, I could say sovereign, full, free forgiveness is that if you have trusted Jesus Christ, you need to know that there is nothing more to offer him. His forgiveness, his pardon is, is free. It is offered to us because Jesus Christ paid the price. There is nothing more to be paid Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? Not one. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I'd like you just to close your eyes, and I want you to listen to the promises of God's word. He says, I hope, I hope, my hope is in your word. I want you to listen to the promises of God's word with regard to as I read some psalms and, and passages. Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far 
has he removed our transgressions from us. Spurgeon called it, he cast our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. He chooses to remember them no more. Colossians 2, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. I want you to think of these passages regarding the, the forgiveness of God. You can open your eyes now. Sam Storm says, If what we find with God is forgiveness for our sins, what grounds remain for us to live in terror of his judgment or wrath. If God has wiped clean the slate of our sins and guilt, then clearly he has chosen not to mark iniquities, and just as clearly all reason for fear is gone. Therefore, if the fear of God in this passage, and let me read that again, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. If the fear of God in this passage was a reference to dread of impending judgment, Forgiveness would be emptied of all meaning and value. Once the reality of this is fully grasped, the only reason, reasonable response is one of brokenness, humility, and I love this, breathtaking awe at such amazing love. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared and worshipped. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you recognize that daily you sin against God and you still fall short of His standard, this is our opportunity to rehearse the truth of the gospel. That there is full and free and sovereign pardon and forgiveness from Almighty God because Jesus Christ paid the penalty. You say, where's the gospel in this psalm? It's all over this psalm with this idea that God can forgive and redeem based on the work of, of Christ on our behalf. What will enable you to move out of the depths to trust in God? Verses 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits and in his word, I hope. Last time I talked about anchor verses. Uh, verses of scripture, promises of God's word that anchor us to the person of God and his work for us in Jesus Christ. I gave you just some examples, but um, you need to come up with your own. I had someone come up after the service last week and, and share with me some of their anchor verses in their dark nights of the souls, in their times of feeling in the depths. Um, I'll guarantee you there will be a time, if you are not there now, when you are in a very dark place. And we must prepare ahead of time and have these promises of God's Word ready at hand because hope springs 
from truth rehearsed. On the back of your outline, I put uh, from this Mark uh, Vrogop um, in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, uh, six reasons to learn to lament. There are good reasons why lament should be a language that we are very familiar with. And he, he says there's four main elements of a lament. Turning to God. Don't be silent. Don't isolate, but cry out to God. Bring your complaint, your pains, your frustrations, your questions, and then ask boldly for help. Sometimes the, 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 the almost like command imperatives that the, that the psalmist uses, almost like, oh my goodness, can I say that to God? Listen to me. Yeah, uh, and and that's, what, that's what are recorded for us to pray this. Um, and then choose to trust. This is the um, this is the place where all laments lead, is to trust and ultimately to praise concerning God's character and His promises, and um, and so, um, yeah, he says uh, the practice of lament is one of the most theologically informed actions a person can take, while crying is fundamental to humanity. Christians lament because they know God is sovereign and He is good. Christians know His promises in the Scriptures. We believe in God's power to deliver. We know the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive. And yet, we still experience pain and sorrow. Lament is the language of living between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. It is a prayer form for people who are waiting for the day Jesus will return and make everything right. Therefore, Christians not only mourn the brokenness of the world, but we also long for the day when all weeping will cease. Anyone can cry, he says, but only Christians can faithfully lament. I know how to cry, you know how to cry, but do we know how to lament? Trusting God... For his forgiveness, which is full and free through Jesus Christ, gives us hope of his ultimate redemption and brings us out of the depths. That's the message of this psalm. And, um, and so as the, as the worship team comes, Martin Luther, um, I said this was one of his favorite psalms, uh, spent a lot of time in the Psalms. They, they say that as a, as a monk, he learned this discipline of reading the Psalms. He would read the Psalms at seven designated times each day. He'd pull out the Psalter and begin to read Psalms seven different times a day so that in two weeks he would be able to read the whole Psalms. And he did this continually in his life. Um... We often think of Martin Luther as giving to the church this, this uh, incredible doctrine of, of sola fide or sola gratia, that, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our justification is by faith alone, not by works. We also know that he gave to the church um, the importance of sola scriptura and the fact that we can try... Our, our absolute authority is the Word of God. It's the Scriptures. This is what we stand on. Not church tradition, but God's Word. 
And so he gave this to the church. But we don't often know or recognize that the other thing that Martin Luther gave to the church, it's often overlooked. And some feel like this is Martin Luther's greatest contribution in his life. He gave songs and hymns back to the church to sing congregationally. The the Catholic Church had had removed this. There, There was nothing sung. The people were not singing the truths of the Word of God. And so as he... As he began to teach in the university the book of Psalms, he, he began to write his own psalms and his own songs. And, and one of them, uh, what's, what's the hymn that we most know of Martin Luther's? Tell me. Mighty Fortress. From Psalm 46. It's from Psalm 46. He read the psalm and he wrote a song, a hymn. This is the song that he wrote. For Psalm 130. From the depths of woe I raise to thee the voice of lamentation. Lord, turn a gracious ear to me and hear my supplication. If thou iniquities dost mark, our secret sins and misdeeds dark, oh, who shall stand before thee to wash away the crimson stain Grace, grace alone availeth. Our works, alas, are all in vain. In much the best life faileth. No man can glory in thy sight. All must alike confess thy might and live alone by mercy. Therefore my trust is in the Lord and not in mine own merit. On him my soul shall rest. His word upholds my fainting spirit. His promised mercy is my fort, my comfort, and my sweet support. I wait for it with patience. What though I wait the lifelong night until the dawn appeareth? My heart still trusteth in his might. It doubteth not, nor feareth. Does Do thus, O ye of Israel's seed, Ye of the Spirit born indeed, and wait till God appeareth. And his final verse is, Though great our sins and sore our woes, His grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows, Our utmost need it soundeth. Our shepherd good and true is He, Who will at last His Israel free from all their sin. And sorrow. Stephen Lawson said, Romans gave Luther his theology, but the Psalms gave him his thunder because he identified with the emotions in the Psalms. It gave him strength. I pray that each of us in this brief series on the Lament Psalms would, would treasure the Psalms more, would spend more time in them, would would pray them to God, would see. Maybe you want to write your own laments. Maybe you want to write your own songs. Maybe you're a poet. I didn't even know it. And maybe, maybe you can write just like Martin Luther did and, 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 and draw on the truths of his word as you put it into 
song. This is what we should be singing, these truths to God. And I invite us to stand together as our worship team leads us again in some powerful gospel truths. Let's sing it together.